Welcome everybody, my name is Mikhail Nasrani and this is Islam for Christians, episode 21, The Sufis. Often in the Christian mind, Islam is not considered an overly spiritual religion. By this I mean that the common mindset is that Muslims don't feel a whole lot. They do what they're told, they collect their rewards, and they move on. There's no emotion, no feeling, and certainly nothing Christians would consider to be the Holy Spirit. Now, if you think that, that's perfectly okay. It's the starting point, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. But as your knowledge of this religion grows, you'll find this really is not the case. Yes, there are armies of Islamic scholars obsessing over the most minute details of life. Islamic law is important, perhaps the most important thing in the religion. But it doesn't mean that the faith lacks other elements and other important aspects. One of these elements is mysticism. Yes, just like Christianity, Islam has a long, spectacular history of mystics. Just so no one is left out here, for those who don't know, I'll define mysticism briefly. Mysticism is basically attempting a direct, experiential relationship with God. A mystic is someone who talks to God, sort of. Uh, you could also say a mystic experiences God, or exists for a brief period directly adjacent to God. The mystic believes truth can be attained not only from religious texts and prophets and things like that, but from personal experience of the divine. This is usually through contemplation, meditation, things like that. A Christian example of mysticism would be St. John of the Cross who wrote Dark Night of the Soul, or Teresa of Avila, or Sadhu Sundar Singh, or countless others. Actually, if someone is a monk living in a monastery, that person is almost surely a mystic. Okay, so that brings us to the title of this episode, which is The Sufis. Sufis are just Islamic mystics. They are Muslims who seek a direct experience of the divine. They can be Sunni, they can be Shia, they can be any other kind of Muslim. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. Remember that Sufism is not a sect. It shouldn't be confused with Sunni or Shia. It's more of a worship style and point of emphasis than it is a sect. And Sufism is wholly Islamic. One cannot be a Sufi without being a Muslim. In fact, Sufis consider the first of their kind to be Muhammad. Who else? And they're actually on pretty solid ground with that claim. Because Muhammad directly experienced the divine. If he hadn't, the Quran would not exist. Islam would not exist. It's the bedrock of the religion. It's that experience. And like Muhammad, Sufis do all the things that good Muslims do, including following the Sharia and all that. But they go deeper. For a Sufi, the Sharia is like the shell of an egg. They would call this the exoteric domain of Islam. Exoteric is what is outside of and independent of individual experience. Now, most Muslims are okay with this, but Sufis dig deeper. They are after the yolk of the egg, what they would call the esoteric domain of Islam. Esoteric means the realm of the individual. This is where the inner truth really is, and the Sufis call it hakika, which translates as truth or reality. You may hear echoes of Christian mystics using those words. 
The Sufis do not believe this can be attained simply by listening to the prophets or through rational thought. The truth must be attained, you know, personally through things like ecstatic experience, meditation, things like that. This transcends language and thus can't really be passed on to another person like a gospel or a Quranic surah. It's beyond that. In the language of spirit and emotion, so one uniquely Sufi way of attaining this is through dhikr Allah, which means remembering God. Now, this practice is often done in groups, but also individually, using the exoteric tools that they do have, like the Quran and the Arabic names of God. These are repeated or chanted in certain ways, trying to tap the inner yoke of God. The rituals try to focus on basic elements like breathing and the heart beating. The chants are as much breathing exercises as they are holy words, and the word Allah, its two syllables sounding like a heartbeat, is chanted in unison with a person's heartbeat. Now, seriously, if you ever have a chance to see this, I highly recommend it. Uh, a dhikr often involves music and dance as well. Um, if you've ever seen the whirling dervishes, those are a type of Sufi. Sufis tend to see God in the natural world, which, again, is not unlike many of the great Christian mystics. Sufis tend to see prostrating men in rock formations, for example. But in Sufism, this also extends to the written word, at least the written word in Arabic. Because the Quran is holy, you can find meaning even in the shape of Arabic letters. Sufis tend to notice things in the physical shape of the letters that others miss. For example, hold up your right hand, palm out, put your fingers together, kind of like a traffic cop telling someone to stop. There should be no space between your fingers. Now look at your hand. What you're seeing eerily resembles the Arabic characters for Allah, and the three Arabic consonants in the name Adam, to use another example, Adam, the first man, they actually look like, in sequence, a praying Muslim standing, kneeling, and then bowing down. Images like these inspire breathtaking Sufi calligraphy. Just put Sufi and calligraphy into a search engine sometime, and you'll see some pretty amazing stuff. Now, Sufis have always been small in number, but great in influence, which is another thing they certainly have in common with their Christian counterparts. You can't just wake up one day and say, I am a Sufi. Well, I suppose some people do, but that's not how it's supposed to work. Becoming Sufi usually involves learning from someone else, preferably within a tariqa, which is kind of like a Christian monastic order. Um, I should clarify here that many Muslims may identify as Sufis and probably use some Sufi practices in their personal faith, but that's not the kind of Sufi I'm talking about here. There are many millions of casual and cultural Sufi Muslims. Again, not talking about them. Instead, I'm talking about hardcore, dedicated mystics. Much as in the Christian world, there is a big difference between seeking some time for solitude and contemplation and going all the way and joining a religious order or a monastery or something like that. Now, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Sufi orders. And there is no sanctioning body like the Catholic Church to approve all of these orders. 
And like Christian orders, they tend to be founded by saints or great spiritual figures. Going through all the current orders would be next to impossible, and it would probably be a 10-year podcast just to do that. So I just want to so focus on the Sufi giants, particularly the earliest ones. The first is Hassan al-Basri, 642 to 728. Al-Basri is often called the patriarch of Sufism, laying the ground for the mystic traditions that would follow. Uh, al-Basri was born a decade after Muhammad's death, and both his parents were slaves, but he did manage to get an education to the point where by the time he was 14, he was a full-blown Hafiz. Hafiz is somebody who has memorized the Quran. He eventually went to Basra, thus the name al-Basri. Uh, he became an Islamic religious renaissance man of sorts. Uh, he was a gifted scholar and a Quran reciter and a storyteller and a theologian and a law expert. But he was also an ascetic, and he also said many very gospel-y sounding things about forsaking the world. For example, he would say things like, quote, make this world a bridge over which you will cross, but do not build on it, end quote. It's very similar to what Jesus said about storing your treasures in heaven. And here's another one, quote, O child of Adam, sell the world for the sake of the hereafter, and you shall gain both, but do not sell the hereafter for the sake of the world, because you shall lose both. End quote. Like Muhammad, he stressed the importance of contemplation and prayer and remembering God. He would tell people to constantly repolish their hearts lest they grow rusty. And now I want to talk about Rabia, 714 to 801. More so than any other Sufi saint, Rabia checks all the boxes for the holy sensibilities of Christians. Lowborn? Check. Poor family? Check. Early ego-destroying experience? Definitely. She didn't even have a real name. Rabia just means fourth. She was the fourth child, and by that time her family cared so little, they didn't even bother to give her a proper name. Rabia's family was so poor, they didn't even have a blanket to wrap her in. These may seem like disadvantages to most, and in many earthly ways they are. But when you're seeking God, in that respect, she was born with a silver spoon. Rabia became an ascetic and pursued God for the sake of God alone, not due to fear or obligation, but purely based on love. Rabia wanted to be with God, much like an obsessed lover might view a romantic partner. She wholly rejected the standard quid pro quo of follow God because he will grant you paradise. Instead, Rabia said, O Lord, if I worship you out of fear of hell, burn me in hell. If I worship you in the hope of paradise, forbid it to me. But if I worship you for your own sake, do not deprive me of your eternal beauty. Uh, just let that bounce around in your head for a while. This was selfless love for God. She didn't love God for his power or anything he could do for her, and not even because he willed her into existence. She loved God for God, 
plain and simple. This really began to cement a common Sufi metaphor, which is God as lover. The Sufi as a moth and God as the flame. The ultimate lover who makes human lovers look pathetic and insignificant by comparison. This was unconditional love, expecting nothing in return, especially in terms of worldly gain. And now we'll move on to the first of what would become known as the drunken Sufis. I'll explain that in a second. The first of these were Bayezid Bastami, 804 to 874. Bayezid Bastami was, in his own words, a drunk. Uh, being a good Muslim, he never touched alcohol, but rather his drunkenness was a metaphor for his religious experience. When he was in a state of religious ecstasy, Bastami ceased to exist, he thought. He was in a state of self-annihilation, and with him gone, it only left God inside his body. Now, you can already see that he's treading on dangerous ground here, and it only got worse. When in this state, he would say things like, Glory be to me! How great is my glory! Also, I was walking around the Kaaba, searching for God. When I attained God, I saw the Kaaba walking around me. Again, this is dangerous stuff, and certainly blasphemy to those who did not understand. Somehow, luckily, it never got him killed, but a similar Sufi would not be so lucky. So that brings us to the unlucky Al Halaj, 858-922. Al Halaj claimed to be the truth, that nothing but God was beneath his coat. This was the same experience of Bastami, someone experiencing self-annihilation and believing only God was in him. He publicly said, Anna al-Haq, which means I am the absolute truth. This is also one of the 99 Islamic names of God, and it would have been understood that way. Uh, he was saying that he was God, at least to the layman's ears, that is, and more importantly, to Islamic authorities at the time. To them, he appeared to be claiming a union with God rather than an experience of God. And he would say all kinds of provocative things like, O oh men, save me from God, who has robbed me of myself. Al-Halaj drew the attention and condemnation of petty bureaucrats and religious authorities and the highest imperial authorities as well. Does this sound familiar? He was, from a certain point of view, claiming to be God. Again, sound familiar to any Christians out there? He was tortured and executed in a horrific manner, much like a first-century Jewish guy named Jesus of Nazareth. So unsurprisingly, Christians tend to be drawn to the story of Al-Halaj. The man who brought him to the West was a French Catholic scholar named Louis Massignon, who was a theologian with a special eye on the relationship between Christianity and Islam. Massignon founded the Badaliva Prayer Association, which is a Christian Muslim prayer group. He wrote a four-volume work on Al-Halaj in French. There are also English translations of it, too. And if you ever read anything on Al-Halaj, that's H-A-L-L-A-J, it's probably from that. 
so now to swing the pendulum back, it's tended to happen back a little, maybe toward sanity in the eyes of some is Al Junaid, 8.30 to 9.10. Now, Al Junaid was a contemporary of the previous two drunken mystics I just described, but Al Junaid was the opposite of those two, who were known as the drunken Sufis. He is known as the ultimate sober Sufi, deliberately contrasting the ecstatic experiences of people like Al-Halaj with what came to be known as sober Sufism with a greater emphasis on earthly responsibility. If the drunken Sufis were Homer Simpson, Aljunaid was Ned Flanders. Or, to use a better comparison, Aljunaid was returning to the earthly example of Muhammad, whereas the drunken Sufis had been moving in a more Christian-like, ascetic direction. Now, what do I mean by this? Aljunaid still considered self-annihilation valuable, but saw it as a rebirth that would be followed by a sobering up, a coming down in which the mystic can live in the ordinary world to teach and be a guide to others. Aljunaid lived like Muhammad lived, involving himself in earthly life to the point he became an important judge in Baghdad. Like Muhammad, Aljunaid had no problem mixing the mundane with the holy, and he saw no contrast there. The drunken Sufis were not too interested in the world, and didn't necessarily have practical advice for how to, despite being a Sufi, do things like hold a job, run a government, raise children, or any of the other things that just seem pointless when compared to experiencing God. Aljunaid brought Sufism back down to earth. And that brings us to the great Al-Ghazali, 1058 to 1111. Al-Ghazali was a giant of the Muslim golden era, whose greatest contributions were in philosophy and theology. Al-Ghazali was more of an intellectual giant than a purely spiritual one, intellectually codifying tenets of Sufism and squaring them with Sunni orthodoxy. You could call him a sober Sufi. You know, he didn't emphasize ecstatic experience, but instead discipline. It was discipline that separates us from the animals. And that discipline was, not surprisingly, Sunni Islam. He took on the Islamic philosophers he thought were getting a little too Greek, putting God back at the center of everything where he thought God belonged, obviously. Al-Ghazali was not originally a Sufi, but eventually he saw them as the perfect synthesis of intellect and Islam. He said, I knew with certainty that the Sufis are those who uniquely follow the way of God Most High. Their mode of life is the best of all, their way the most direct of ways, and their ethic the purest. Indeed, were one to combine the insight of the intellectuals, the wisdom of the wise, and the lore of scholars versed in the mysteries of revelation in order to change a single item of Sufi conduct and ethic, and to replace it with something better, no way to do so would be found. For all their motions, exterior and interior, are learned from the light of the niche of prophecy. And beyond the light of prophecy, there is no light on earth from which illumination can be obtained. So now we'll move on to a guy named Rumi. 1207 to 1273. 
You may have heard of Rumi. Uh, he is arguably the most popular poet in the history of the world. And one reason for this is his poems can be read and appreciated by pretty much everyone, regardless of religion, or even if they have no religion at all. Now, this can be good in many ways. I mean, the more people who hear great literature, the better, right? You know, is it really such a bad thing that Rumi's books are found in mushy self-help sections all around the world? Would he really have a problem with that? Probably not. But at the same time, this tends to strip Rumi of what was a specifically Islamic and Sufi outlook. Rumi was a universalist in the sense that he hoped Muhammad's light would touch everyone, but he clearly thought Islam was the superior religion and Muhammad the greatest teacher, and obviously that Sufism was the best way to practice Islam. And like any Sufi, he emphasized the inner experience of God. Here's a short poem on that attitude. Cross and Christians, end to end, I examined. He was not on the cross. I went to the Hindu temple, to the ancient pagoda. In none of them, there was any sign. To the heights of Herat I went, and to Kandahar I looked. He was not on the elevation, not on the lowlands. Resolutely, I went to the summit of the fabulous mountain of Kaf. There was only the dwelling of the Anka bird. So I went to the Kaaba at Mecca. He was not there. I asked of him from Avicenna the philosopher. He was beyond the range of Avicenna. Then I looked into my own heart. In that place I saw him. He was in no other place. So while we're talking about great poets, I'd like to introduce you to Hafiz, 1315 to 1390. Hafiz lived about a century after Rumi and left behind some spectacular poems. He was more Mark Twain than Al-Ghazali, you know, more likely to deconstruct than to develop some kind of complete theology or philosophy. He is known mostly as a literary figure, but also as a mystic and of course, a Sufi. I have included him simply because I think his work is so great, and like Rumi, it has a wide appeal. His work reflects his Sufism, stressing the personal experience of God. One of the things I found most amusing about him was his early realization that, for the mystic, longing romantically for a person was simply idiotic. There is an apocryphal story about Hafiz, that early in his life he obsessed over a woman and wrote great poetry to win her. But when he discovered God, he forgot about her completely. Now here's one of my favorite poems on this subject, translation by Daniel Ladinsky. Let thought become the beautiful woman. Cultivate your mind and heart to that depth, that it can give everything a warm body can. Why just keep making love with God's child, form, when the friend himself is standing before us so open-armed? My dear, let prayer become your beautiful lover and become free, become free of this whole world like Hafiz. You know, there is a strange eroticism in much of his work, a Sufi eroticism, so to speak. Hafiz took the idea of God as lover and really, really ran with it. 
you know, it might sound creepy to some, but to others, it sounds like a great attempt to actually transcend human sexuality. You know, you'll hear echoes of Rabia in a lot of his work, just from obviously a male perspective. One thing to remember about Sufis is that they will be inevitably misunderstood. Much of this just has to do with language and the way they use it. The Sufis speak in a way that only makes sense to others who are Sufis or who have experienced something similar. Al-Khalaj never believed he was actually God, but his contemporaries simply didn't understand the true nature of what he was saying. This never ended, really. Sufism is popular in the West, which is unsurprising given Western culture's emphasis on individual experience, and also the way Sufis tend to bend toward universalism. For an example of this, here's a poem by Hafiz that kind of encapsulate this the general Sufi attitude toward universalism. I have learned so much from God that I can no longer call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jew. The truth has shared so much of itself with me that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman, an angel, or even pure soul. Love has befriended Hafiz so completely it has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and image my mind has ever known. Here's something similar from Rumi. Not a Christian or Jew or Muslim, not Hindu, Buddhist, Sufi, or Zen, not any religion or cultural system. I am not from the East or the West, not out of the ocean or up from the ground not natural or ethereal, not composed of elements at all. I do not exist. am not an entity in this world or the next. Did not descend from Adam and Eve or any origin story. My place is the placeless, a trace of the traceless, neither body or soul. I belong to the beloved, have seen the two worlds as one, and that one call to and know, first, last, outer, inner, only that breath-breathing human being. So yes, we love the Sufis over here in the West, but in conservative Muslim countries with Salafist or Wahhabist influence, Sufism can still get you killed. Groups like the Taliban, ISIS, and their type have often targeted Sufi shrines and buildings and gatherings. Now, the sheer nihilism of some of these modern groups is arguably new, and their disdain for knowledge rivals the Mongol hordes more than the Islamic, early Islamic community. But the Sufis have been dealing with this kind of thing for a very, very long time. And misunderstanding mystics isn't unique to Islam either. And I think that's part of their cross-faith appeal. Everyone loves Rumi, and one does not have to be a Christian to appreciate St. Francis. This might be why Christians are drawn to Al-Halaj, and some humanists are drawn to Francis, and even Jesus to some extent. But again, I need to emphasize the specifically Islamic quality of Sufism. These are not Unitarians. The tradition traces all the way back to Muhammad and was developed in an Islamic context. Now, I'm sure there were other influences, many of them Christian, but Sufis are Muslims. 
They always have been, and they always will be. But I still think everyone, regardless of faith, can appreciate the ancient Sufi traditions. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.